0: Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Turn in your Bibles to John 3:16. John 3:16. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Thought I could handle more than that, but I can't. There's probably no, there's definitely no more wider known verse in the whole Bible than John three sixteen. More widely known, yet less read by any of us. Be honest. When you're reading through the Gospel of John and you get to chapter three, you don't read verse sixteen. You skim it like the rest of us. We all know it. So we just right through it because it's so. Familiar. I mean, it's so familiar with us. I mean, there's a bit of the lore of John 3:16 in the day in which we live, at least. I mean, when I was a, a director at uh, Frontier Camp, I got on this kick. I wanted to know where all of the staffers were, all these college kids and then some high school kids. Where are they in Bible literacy? So I made up this quiz, not a quiz, like a poll. That sounds less aggressive, a poll uh, to find out what they knew about the Bible. And so I put some some silly questions in there. Sodom and Gomorrah were they a cities that got obliterated? B a faithful Old Testament couple? C uh, and you know stuff like that. And most people would sniff those out. You'd be surprised. Some people thought Billy Graham gave the Sermon on the Mount. That was one of the questions. <laughs> uh, and and then I had uh, on there the, the the Ten Commandments. Just list the Ten Commandments. Out of everybody in that poll, it was like 160, 170 something. Kids, like college students and uh, high school kids, nobody got all ten. Nobody, zero, zero percent got all ten. But on John 3.16, what I did was I took the verse and I pulled out a bunch of different words and just left blanks. But I didn't even do like two-word blanks. I would just leave a blank in and between different phrases and things like that. And then I didn't put the reference at all. A hundred percent of them got all John 3.16 correct. A hundred percent. Nobody got all Ten Commandments, but a hundred percent of them got John 3.16, and that's fascinating because the popularity in the wider culture. If you were around and watching TV in the 70s and 80s, I was not, but if you were, you watched a football game, did you ever see the rainbow guy behind the goalpost wearing the shirt that said John 3.16, holding up the sign, or under the underneath the basketball goal, or behind home plate? That guy's name was Roland Stewart, and he was a Jesus freak hippie from California in the '70s, and he did not end up well. He's currently serving several life sentences. So don't don't look him up if you want to be sad. <laughs> Weird story that I read this week. Uh, but that was that became popular, and then it wasn't just him doing it anymore with the rainbow wig. It was everybody doing it. When Tim Tebow, two thousand nine, in a championship game, wrote John three sixteen on his eye black, it, it supposedly got ninety four million hits on Google. Uh during the game. I mean it is all the way through our culture, Forever 21. A retail store has John 3.16 written on the bottom of their bags. In and out burger, which we don't have down here yet, maybe one day. They have it written on the bottom of their cups. John 3.16. I mean, this verse is just everywhere. It's around us all the time in the United States. And somehow we just all know it. It's the only memory verse that you can get by osmosis. And you only get it in the King James. You all know it in the King James. Everybody says, whosoever believes. No, no other translation except for the King James says that. We all know it in that translation for some reason. Well, there's a reason why I think that it's so popular. The verse is so popular. Besides the obvious, studying it this week, you're looking at it, and it's just packed full of Christian truth. Truth about God, about man, about sin, about eternity, about redemption, all packed in there uh, so beautifully and simply worded that a child can remember it. And, and children do in our wanna clubs. They remember them all the time. So just like Nicodemus, though, we're still kind of in that context that we can, we can be in serious danger of missing what is said in this verse if we don't slow down. It was that saying that familiarity breeds contempt, and I don't think we have contempt for this word, for this verse, but familiarity might breed numbness. We kind of grow numb to this verse, in a sense. As serious-minded Christians, we should certainly know more than John 3, 16, but we cannot know less than John three sixteen. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pull the verse apart, all the way apart, look at it, at the significance of it, what it means, and in its context, and then we're going to look at some misperceptions of it. And then we're going to look at some implications of the verse. Like, what do we take away from this? So let's look at the verse. We all know it. This says, for God to love the world. But verse 16 starts a new paragraph in your Bible. Now, I'm going to start this morning off a little bit of controversy. I don't think that verse 16 should be red letters. Does your Bible have red letters on it? Well, John didn't have a red pen and a black pen. Somebody, somebody did that afterward, these words of Jesus. Now, there is, there's debate as to whether or not Jesus said 16 through 21, or whether that's John's commentary on what Jesus said in verses 1 through 15. And I tend to lean that way, that this is not red letters. Now, that doesn't change the meaning of the verse at all. Not at all. It still means exactly what we know it to mean, but... But the red letters, I think, kind of make the decision for us as the reader. I can make a suggestion. If you want to get serious about studying your Bible, get a Bible that doesn't have red letters and doesn't have paragraph titles so that you don't have any help. That you have to actually read and say, who is talking? What is this paragraph actually about? What's this whole chapter actually about? At least have a Bible like that. You can have your other one for a cheat code if you need it. But, uh, but having one like that, it, it helps us study because sometimes we can just read without uh, discerning, without thinking through critically what's really going on. So I think that this is John writing commentary on what has been said in verses 1 through 15. Because it sounds a whole lot like what John wrote in 1, 1 through 18. This discussion as the paragraph goes on about lightness and darkness and believing in the world and Son of Man coming in, speaking in the third person, it seems to be that it's John talking about what Jesus said. But the first word there is for. Now, what is that for? That that makes it link back to what was already said, what was previously said. It indicates that there's a new paragraph, it's a new thought, but it's connected to the previous thought. It's not independent, it's connected. That this is supposed to send us backwards, that John's going to expound and explain further on what happened at the close of verse 15. He's going to look further into it. He's going he's to explain what does verse 15 say, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John's going to expound on that. What made it possible that whoever believes in him can have eternal life? He's going to expound on that reality in verse 16 and following all the way down through 21 to the end of the paragraph. We're only looking at 16 this morning because verse 15 is the first explicit time that Jesus says that he is the way of eternal life. John's already said that in chapter one, verse 12, right? Whoever received him, he gets the right to become children of God. Verse 112, this is the first time Jesus has said it. Jesus has spoken these words that I am the way to eternal life, and John is going to comment on it. Now, I think of it like this, what happened between 15 and 16. The scene was happening with Nicodemus. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at night, and then John just hits the pause button. And then he says, he's like outside of it, and he says, this is how God loved the world. And then he's going to explain that moment This is how God loved the world, that Nicodemus can enter the kingdom of heaven if he will believe in Jesus. He's paused the scene and he's commenting on it. And that's really what, for God so loved the world, it could be translated as, this is how God loved the world. This is how he loved the world. Now, the reader knows that whatever follows in this verse, verse 16, is a direct product of the love of God. This is how he loved. Whatever comes after that is is his love. Is it the example of God's love? It's the product of God's love. What what could possibly have you ever thought and considered this? Now is the time of year is the perfect time to do it. Ever thought and considered what would motivate a father to give his son over to certain death? What could possibly motivate that besides mental derangement? We throw that out because he's God. What would motivate that? Love can only be the motivation. That's the only motivation that makes any kind of coherence. Romans 5, 8 says that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The motive was love. Ephesians 2 four through five, but God being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. We could see God's love by this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is the only motivation, and we cannot minimize that. Can't minimize that. We certainly can't warp it, but we can't minimize it. Love was the motivation for all of that's following. Now, Jews, and particularly Nicodemus as the leader and the teacher of the Jews, they would have been fine with Jesus saying, or John rather commenting here, saying that God so loved the Jews that he gave up his only no There was no problem in his mind about God loving the Jews, but John doesn't say here that God just loves the Jews. He says he loves the world. He loves the whole world. And that's not amazing, D.A. Carson said it like this, that's not amazing because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's what's so confounding about the whole thing. Not because the world is so massive, but because the world is so wicked. That's what makes the love of God so grand. The world is so wicked that John, the guy who wrote this, says later in his epistle, 1 John, he says in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God the Father is not in him. So God the Father can love the world in the right way, but we can't. John says don't love the world at all because the world is wicked and wretched. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that the word love appears. Now that word love appears in our Gospel of John in English about 57 times. And the Bible, New Testament Greek, uses Three or four different words uh, for love. This word is the word agapao, or, or you've heard of agape love. That's the noun form. Agapao is the verb form. And it's a love that's sourced in the giver of love, not in the subject of love. God didn't love the world because it was lovely. He didn't love the world because it was lovable. He loved the world because that's what he does. That's who he is. He's the source of it, not, not the recipient of it. He, he loved the world in its wretched state when we were sinners, dead in our trespasses with no affection for God whatsoever. That's when he loved. That, that can't be, well, I see potential in them. I see potential in the world. There's something I desire in the world. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. That's, that's eros love. That's phileo love even. But agape love is he loves because he's sovereignly determined to do so. It was completely rooted in him. He loved the world because of who he is. And that's a greatly assuring. See, in marriage, we initially love our spouses because of who they are, right? I'm attracted to you. You have things that I desire already in you. that I I want in a spouse. That's how we we come about. They're lovely to you. I pursued Anna because she was the godliest woman I've ever seen, beautiful, fun, and smart. She pursued me because I had flowing cinnamon hair (laughs) and I had a tight athletic frame. Joke's on her because that's all gone. (laughs) Hers is all still there. But what happens eventually in marriage? He snores. She spends too much. He's lazy. She nags. And then you get to the point to where you go, okay, now we're choosing to love our spouses not because there's something lovable in them, but because I'm called to love like God loves when we are unlovely and not lovable. That that is what God does for us. So we, we change in marriage to move towards learning to love like God regardless of whether or not they have merited it. But then the verse goes on, then he gave his only son. What is the result of God's love? God so loved the world, then what happened? He gave his only son. The result of God's love is the vicarious death of Jesus for sinners. God did not love the world because Jesus came and died for the world. God, Jesus came and died because God loved the world. We can't flip that. He loved first, and then Jesus comes as a result. See, in Scripture, God's love always does something. It's always doing something. There's always a result of God's love. The concept of love being just a mere feeling, that's a human idea. That's what we've exclusively made love that, a feeling, that I can fall into it, that I can be overwhelmed by it. God doesn't fall into love he doesn't just get overcome with love and has to act. He is love. He does love because that's his nature. That's who he is. He chooses to love. God's love is what motivated him to sacrifice himself in the second person of the Trinity to satisfy himself. That was what Christ coming and dying was all about. In love, he took the most supreme action of sacrifice at the universe will ever know God's love is action and that action was the ultimate sacrifice for the most unworthy of recipients And that's all of us that's everybody who's ever been saved the most unworthy of recipients that's what who we are now there's this word that he gave his only son now that's not how you memorize it is it how'd you memorize it begotten son right well now what's the difference If you got an NIV, it says one and only son. Well, what's 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 going on there? Translation wise, we got some discrepancy, and if this is the most popular verse in the world, then we gotta know what the difference is. Well, that word that becomes one and only, or only, or begotten, is one word in Greek. It's monogenes. It comes from two words put together, like a lot of words in all languages do. So mono amai is to be left all alone, singular is the first mono of that of that word monogenes and then genomai is to come into being to be born now if we go literally with that like that the only one who was born now we got some problems what happens if jesus the second person of the trinity was created or ginomai is the verb came into being hour in some hot water, because then what are we going to do when we're at work, or we're, or uh, when they got a Jehovah's Witness coming to our neighborhood door, or got a Muslim friend at work, and they turn to John 3 16, and the King James, or the New American, and say, look, Jesus was begotten of God. Isn't that what, how the book of Matthew starts? He begat, and begat, and begat, they're all begotten, they're all born. So Jesus was born. He's not God. He was created by God. What are we going to say to that? Well, first we can say that he was eternally begotten. But what are you going to do if that happens to you? Because in all biblical honesty, we have no hope of salvation if Jesus is a created being. He's no better than you and me. And if I can't save you, then some other guy born in in Nazareth or from Nazareth uh, can't save you either. He's got to be God. Well, I'll tell you what you do if that happens to you and they come to you with John three sixteen. then you just turn their Bible over a couple pages to John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's talking about Jesus' clear statement that he is God. He, he was not a created being that's God-like. He is God, And then you can look at the rest of the gospel of John. See, John's trying to prove this, right? Jesus is God, and salvation is through him alone. Sinners are right with God through him alone. You can look at John's own gospel. So John says in chapter 1, he believes that Jesus is God. Well, then what what does Jesus believe about himself? John 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. If you're one with God, you better be God, otherwise God's not God. So Jesus believes himself to be God. And then this is how those who are listening to him responded. In John 10, 31 through 33, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself to be God. So the apostle John believes that he's God. Jesus believes that he's God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they hear him, they say, you think you're God. So that's what we're going to turn to to understand all of that. And we have to observe this as well, that in the span of three verses, 14, 15, and 16, what has been defined clearly about Jesus, that he is truly man and truly God. Because what does he call himself in Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Son of God, truly God, truly man, in the span of just a few verses. And if he's not both of them, then John 3.16 is a lie. There is no eternal life. At least through Jesus. But it does say that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that say? That says everyone is perishing unto eternal death. No human being ever existed that wasn't destined for eternal destruction. That's what John three sixteen is telling us. This verse presumes that to be true. Yet everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish, will not go into eternal destruction. God will grant them eternal life. Literally, this phrase could be rendered in order that all the believers in him have eternal life that he got sent. He died in order that all the believers in him might have eternal life. Every person who believes in Jesus will not even get a whiff of eternal death. They won't even come within eyesight of it because they'll be granted eternal life. Every single believer in him will escape eternal judgment in hell. Let me tell you that every biblically-minded and biblically-consistent Calvinist says that the word whoever or the word all means whoever and all. That's what the verse means. So we preach to persuade people to believe in Christ because everyone who believes in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. There is no one, not one single person, who wants to be saved yet doesn't have the card that says elect. That's a misnomer. This verse is true for even those who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, that all who want to be saved, all who place their faith, who believe in Jesus, will have eternal life. That is true. If you believe, then you are saved. And if you are saved, then you are elect. So there's nothing to worry about. We look at this verse and we know that it's true what it's saying. So we give all of our energy to calling people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. To tell them, you must believe. You must believe that they must be saved. And affirming that if they do not, they will perish eternally. Now I titled this talk, I stole the title. I'll just confess. I stole it from Martin Luther, but he's dead so I don't think he's gonna come after me about it. He said that John 3.16 was the Bible in miniature. I thought that was so profound, because it is. This verse is the Bible in miniature, because it, it, John 3.16 encompasses a whole worldview. The way that the, way that the world is, is laid out for the Christian is in John 3.16. See, all worldviews have essentially the same four elements. Not because somebody decided that's what worldviews have, because that's what's true of the Bible, and then everybody else unwittingly, knowing that, un- unknowingly, adopts that. So think about these four elements, and and you can fit any worldview you want into it. That there's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. How did we get here? What went wrong? Because something is wrong. How do we fix it? It needs to be fixed, and it can be fixed. And then what's the end result? Those four things, they encompass every single worldview, every single ideology uh, that exists. Exa- just want to throw you an example that's contrary to Christianity, communism. Communism follows that. How did we get here? Darwinian evolution, random chance. What went wrong? Rich people had enough property to oppress poor people. How do we fix it? The government takes everybody's property and then distributes it out to everybody else equally. There's no rich, there's no poor. And what's the end result? What's the consummation? Everybody lives in total utopia, and everybody's happy because nobody goes without, and nobody has too much. Now there's some flaws in that thinking because it never works anywhere it is, but it still follows the same thinking. Now look at John three sixteen. It follows it as well because God created that creation. How did we get here? For God so loved the world. Who does this individual think he is to be able to love the world? How can you actually, if I say I love the world, I can't do anything about that. I can't prove that. I can't substantiate that because I'm limited. I'm finite. I can't love every single person in the world. I can't love most people in the world. I can't love people in my own house the way I should. So God must have some kind of creative level over the world. He created the world. That's how we got here. A creator, a loving creator made us. Well, then what went wrong? It says you shall not perish. Well, we're perishing. Something went wrong. Sin is the problem. Whatever we have done that is sinful. Adam leading us into sin has led to us perishing. How do we fix it? God sent his own son, his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. That's how we fix it. You will not perish if you believe in Jesus. That's the remedy. That's the redemption. Then what's the consummation? Consummation. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Heaven, a new heavens and a new earth. That's what everything is building towards. John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. That's why it's been so powerful for so many millennia. But there are also misconceptions about it. This verse, when it's so popular, it's easy to get misconceived or misperceived. That happens to all popular sayings, right? What's the, what's the saying subpar mean? If your boss says your work was subpar, is that good or bad? It's bad, right? Where does par come from? Golf. Isn't the point of the game, correct me if I'm wrong, to be subpar? Isn't that how you win? So why is it it's so popular it gets misunderstood? Or I think about it like this. If somebody comes to you, a friend says, hey, I want to sit down and talk to you about something mano a mano. What do you think that means? Man to man. We're having a man to man discussion. Is that Spanish for Man no, that's Spanish for hand. Hand-to-hand combat, that's what we're going to engage in here. So when things get popular, they get misunderstood. John three sixteen is no exception. It has two common misconceptions, ways it's used that it wasn't meant to be, and points that it doesn't prove. The first one is this, this idea of unconditional love. That God's love for the world is, is unconditional. God already loves you, when we go to a lost person and say, "God already loves you unconditionally." Is that what John 3:16 is saying? Is that true? Does this mean that God has unconditional love for sinners? Well, the verse itself seems to have at least one condition: Those who believe. They're the only ones that are going to have eternal life. Eternal life is conditioned. You, have, you must believe. If you don't, you're going to remain on the conveyor belt headed to eternal perishing. Well, so, what's the harm, though? I mean, it's kind of nitpicky. What's the harm, though, in telling a, an unbeliever that God has unconditional love for them? What's the, what's the big deal? God is loving, and He is love, I and mean, those are all true. But what's the harm in telling an unbeliever that? Look at it from the perspective of a stubborn, rebellious, arrogant, self sufficient unbeliever. And you come up and tell them, God has unconditional love for you. What would you respond? Of course, He does. I'm awesome. He's desperate to have me on his team, and he should be. I have cultivated myself into a kind of person that an all powerful deity would want. All on my own. You're right. I'll get back to him. I mean, I'm holding all the cards in this deal. God's desperate to have me. So we'll see. I'll see if it works out. See if it's my thing. It can be dangerous. I mean, verse 18 of chapter three will solve that problem real quick. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now let's do benefit of the doubt time. The people who who have said that before, uh, most of us have said that before. What do most people mean when they say God has unconditional love for you and they tack John 3, 16 onto it? What they mean is you don't have to clean yourself up You don't have to become holy. You don't have to make yourself lovable for God to save you. He will save you right now, right in the middle of that brothel, right while you're drunk in that street, right while you're in the middle of stealing, right in the grossest of sins. That's what we mean. And that is true because I can't do anything to make myself more lovely to God. I can't do anything on my own to make myself appealing to God. I'm not appealing to God. I'm repulsive to God. Because I hate God, according to Romans chapter 5, that a lost person hates God. There's nothing that we can do to make God desirous. We're wretched, hardened sinners. However, when the new birth happens and we believe in Christ now, the righteousness of Christ clothes us. Now his righteousness is all on me, all over me. Now God does love me in a way that can never be undone. That's where we draw that eternal security from because we're in Christ. We need to be careful how we present the gospel. We must present the gospel, but it has to be the biblical gospel. It has to be the gospel that we find in the scriptures. God's love is conditional but here's the good news jesus met all the conditions so we have to explain that to everybody god god can't accept you the way that you are and you can't do anything to fix it well then if they're really listening they should be like well then i'm sunk what hope do i have then we come in with the good news christ met all those conditions you are saved by works they're just not your works They're Jesus's works and they all get transferred to your account. One click. They're all in your account as if you had done them. The great exchange happens when we believe in Christ, all of our filth and unworthiness goes on him and all of his righteousness and purity comes on us. So that's what we have to explain to people. When we share the gospel, we must tell people that because only that is good news. It's bad news to say, well, can I, you know, come to church a little bit, clean yourself up, shave, bleach out your tattoos, and then maybe we will have a chance. It's bad news. It's also bad news to say that God, God loves you in your sinfulness exactly how you are. He wants you to stay that sinful. He doesn't care if you do anything about that. He's going to love you regardless. Because that's not true either. That's also bad news. That's deceptive news. The truth is, is that I am a wretched sinner that God can't love, but he loves Jesus, and if I put my faith in him, then I'm placed positionally in him. Now God loves me eternally and irrevocably, regardless of my sin. So that's misperception number one. Misperception of John 3.16, number two, is this idea of God's universal love, the word world. I and mean, we gotta wrestle with that. Does that mean that God loves, God so loved the dirt and the trees? and the cows, and the water cycle, and metamorphosis. Is that what he means when he says loves the world? Or does that mean that God loves the sinful behavior patterns of humanity? Like worldliness, we don't wanna be worldly. Does he love that world? Or is it that God loves every single person that has ever walked on the face of the planet exactly the same? Is Is that what world means? Well, let me tell you how difficult this word "world" is. This Greek word for co- it's called "cosmos," and the big, thick dictionary that you get when you go to seminary for Greek words that costs one hundred and fifty dollars used, not cheap, has seven definitions for the word "cosmos." Let me just run down a few of them for you: that which serves to beautify through decoration, adornment, or adorning. Cosmos, cosmetology. Okay. Second one: condition of orderliness, orderly arrangement, order. Third, the sum total of everything here and now, the world, the orderly universe. Fourth, the sum total of all beings above the level of animals, the world. Number five, planet Earth as a place of inhabitation, the world. Six, humanity in general, the world. Seven, the system of human existence in its many aspects, the world. That's overwhelming, isn't it? It's just seven definitions for one word. I mean, it just proves, again, that, that John is a book that a child can grasp and glean glorious eternal truths from, but that it's a book that is so intricate and can keep the sharpest of Christian minds occupied joyously for a lifetime. Like we said at the beginning of this series, it's a pool shallow enough for a child to wade in safely, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. That's what John is. Let's work through this, though, on a real-life level, because you're not going to buy that dictionary for $150. We're not all going to be Greek scholars. But God's word is knowable and not just for the superminds. We study under that presumption that God's word is knowable. I can understand this. So we have to work with that. We're going to have to take a little closer look. We're going to have to go a little further into the deep end. And you may feel like you're going to go under. And if you do, grab onto your neighbor. Or your seat cushion can be used as a flotation device. <laughs> Hold on. We won't be in the deep end for very long. Let me ask you this question, though. Does God love Hitler the same way that he loves Corrie ten Boom? If you don't know who Corrie ten Boom was, she was a uh, Dutch woman who hid Jews in her house and eventually got caught by the Germans for doing that and sent to a uh, concentration camp wherein her father and her sister died and then she was released. And she kept her faith the whole time and led this amazing testimony and then forgave the guy who killed his, her sister to his face. Afterwards, so does God love Hitler and Corrie Ten Boom the same? Let's say let's just for some will say yes, some will say no. Let's say yes for now. If God then loves Hitler and Corrie Ten Boom the same, did God give Jesus for Hitler? Is that true? Some will say yes, some will say no. Let's say yes for now. Just to be clear, then, what did Jesus's death do? If God gave him for, for us, what does his death do? Second, or Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says it real succinctly. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus nailed to the cross, it made spiritually dead people alive, it forgave them other trespasses it canceled their sin debt it nailed their mortgage of debt to the cross and says paid in full that's what jesus death accomplishes so now back to hitler where is he now that he's dead hell right unless he had some some pre suicide confession of faith that we don't know about we we're presuming that somebody that wicked is in hell of any wickedness level well what is hell Jesus says in Matthew 13 and Matthew 25, I'll read these. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew 25:41, he says this about hell. Then he will say to those on his left, those who were wicked, those who didn't put their faith in him, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. Because so that's what hell is, and we're saying that's where Hitler is, and we're saying that Jesus loves him the same way that he loved Corey ten Boom. If that's, where hell, if that's what hell is, is a place where people go for eternity to pay for the sins that they've done here, can anyone be there for whom Christ died? Remember, Christ's death accomplishes something. It cancels our debt, it nails it to the cross, it forgives us of our trespasses. It accomplishes something. So if God loved Hitler and gave his son for Hitler and thus the son then died for Hitler, and yet Hitler is in hell, that would have to mean that Hitler's sins are being punished twice, right? Because Jesus paid for him on the cross once, and now Hitler's paying for them in hell again. So he died for them twice, or they got punished twice. Now, wouldn't that make God cruel to punish Jesus for sins that he knew he was gonna punish Hitler for anyways? Doesn't that make Jesus' death weak and impotent to pay for Hitler's sins? It didn't work. He still ended up in hell. All right, now everybody swim back to the edge of the pool. We're done. We're out of the deep end. Take a breath. Deep end session's over. The point of that is to illuminate the misperception that God's love goes to every individual in the exact same way. Jesus said that God has some kind of love For the evil, it's called common grace. Look at Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So you're like God if you love your enemies and you pray for them who persecute you because God does this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So in a sense, God did love Hitler in a way. He had parents, he had food, he had education, he had material wealth and comfort, and he, he lived a life making choices as an individual. But while it is a degree of love of God to have that, pe- wicked people having food and shelter, material comfort, on and on, it doesn't grant anyone eternal life, though it is still a degree of the love of God. So when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, I'm convinced, along with many others that it means the sixth definition that we read, humanity in general. God loves human beings, humankinds, enough to send his son to die and to save those who believe in him. And what convinces me more than a dictionary or a commentary is Jesus' own words. Jesus says in John 15, verse 19, to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a distinction there between those who have believed in him and and the world. In in chapter 17, verse nine, and Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer to God. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Then he goes on to say in the same chapter, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, verse 16 says. So John's use of the word world here in verse 16 seems to indicate that Jesus' sacrifice is not exclusive to one people group and one piece of land at one time. But God so loved the world. Everybody in the the world has a chance to respond to the gospel, has heard the gospel. Some are hard and some are not. But all people groups, all time periods. Jesus didn't just die for near eastern Palestinians in the first century. He died for everyone in every era. The The whole world will be represented in God's kingdom, every tribe and tongue. Now... This is, I know this is difficult to think through, but John Piper had this amazing way of describing this and he just says it and how he teaches it at his church. I'm gonna read it to you in full. It's kind of long, but it's worthwhile and he's smarter and better than me, so we can listen to him. It says, we see this again in this idea of of Jesus' love, God's love, in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband loves his wife in a way that is different from the way he loves other women. And Christ loves his bride, the church, in a way that is different from the way he loves other people. He gave himself up for her. And then Piper says, in my preaching, this has been one of the most effective ways to help my people feel the preciousness of definite atonement as an expression of God's distinguishing love for them. What would it be like for a wife, I ask them, to think that her husband only loves her the way he loves all other women? That stings a little bit. It would be disheartening. He chose her. He wooed her. He took the initiative because he set his favor on her from all the others. He has a distinguishing love for her, a great love that is unique. She is his own loved treasure like no other woman. And so God's elect are his own loved and blood-bought people as none others are. That summarizes it well in a way that is comforting. Now, what do we draw in conclusion from John 3.16? Two major implications from this verse, evangelism and comfort for the believer. Evangelism. Not only should we be motivated by John 3.16 to evangelize, we should be using this as our content. Here's what I was overwhelmed with conviction this week, just over, like humiliated in my study. How much does God value souls? According to this verse, how much do I value souls? What did God give up for souls? His only, his unique, his solo son for souls. What price am I paying for others, to see others obtain eternal life. I mean, I was crushed by my own evangelistic complacency. Don't I want to be godly? Don't I want to be like God? What did he hold back from souls being saved? Why am I so comfortable with the excuses that I generate to not evangelize in a clear and and direct and but loving way? That's what man, that's why we should continue using this verse in evangelism. That's why it should motivate us. God so loved that he gave. Love impelled him to give and to sacrifice. You know, and all we're being asked to sacrifice is a little bit of comfort, maybe a reputation with a coworker or a friend, or maybe just a few minutes of time. That's what was killing me this week. It's only time that I'm gonna have to sacrifice until. Until something else happens, I'm not going to get killed for this in the United States. So that was the the kick in the pants. But the uplifting of this verse comes in the comfort for believers. If it's true that God gave his own son for those who believe in him to have eternal life, what is he going to withhold from us as we live our lives? Have you ever thought about that? Romans 8.32 says it as clearly. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered or gave him up for us all, how will he not with him or with him not also give us freely all things? He already gave up his son. What else is he going to hold back that you need, that you're hurting for? Nothing. He already gave the maximum. He already paid the unthinkable price to save our souls for eternity. I think he can handle my bills. I think he can handle my job problems. He can handle my cancer. He can handle my wayward children who've run away from Christ. If he loved me then, he loves me now. John 3.16 should envelop us on all sides with the unimaginable comfort of God. In the darkest of storms the coldest of winters. Because if he loved me then, he loves me now. If God moved toward me at the height of my rebellion against him, then why would he put me out now? Why would he not care about me now? His love for us is not based on him, or not based on us, it's based on him. It's not sourced in us, it's sourced in him. And that should comfort us beyond all means because we're so inconsistent, amen? We're constantly failing. We're constantly falling short. Here's what Spurgeon had to say. I'm going to read this and we're going to be done. The love of God is a wonderful thing, especially when we see it set on a lost, ruined, guilty world. What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard of his law, rebellion against his commandments. Those were the thorns and the briars that covered the wasteland, but no desirable thing blossomed there. Where did this love come from? Not from anything outside of God himself. God's love springs from himself. He loves because it is his nature to do so. And we rest in that that's where we rest. That's where we find our comfort. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.